0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a piece by Vladimir Nabokov called My Russian Education.
1: My father was, indeed, a very active man, but I viewed his activities through a prism of my own.
0: The story was chosen by the Turkish novelist Orhan Pamuk, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 2006. His books in English include the novel Snow and the memoir Istanbul, Memories of a City. The English translation of his most recent novel, The Museum of Innocence, will be released later this month. He joins us from a studio in Boston. Hi, Orhan. Hi, Debra. So what made you want to do a Nabokov piece for the podcast?
1: Well, this is from Speak Memory, which I love so much. And there are so many little personal things that make me remember this story. This is less about Russian education, more about Russian father, actually. Mm -hmm. Father's books, waking up early and doing homework before going to school, hurrying, seeing father, worrying about father's health, this kind of thing is so familiar to me that this stayed with me. And the writing here is so beautiful as well. There are typical Nabokovian writing, paying attention to visual detail as well as humor, precision of the language, and and an all-embracing tenderness that not only goes to father, but to the whole universe that I like.
0: It's interesting. When I was reading your new novel, The Museum of Innocence, I, I thought a little bit of Lolita, of, of Nabokov's Lolita, in the, in the sense that it has this same story of a, a forbidden longing that takes place over years and years.
1: Probably I will have anxiety of influence about Nabokov all of my <laughs> life, and it's okay. I accept it, that I have learned so much from Nabokov. That, that's why I also choose to do something from speak memory or my Russian education.
0: Now, you mentioned that this piece, My Russian Education, was in his his autobiography, Speak Memory. You know, we published it in The New Yorker officially as fiction, along with, I think, 11 chapters of that book. And um, he published a few other chapters of the book in other magazines, also as stories. And then he included a couple of them in story collections, as well as in the memoir. Why why do you think he chose to sort of blur that line between fiction and autobiography?
1: I think writers are less interested in the line between fiction and non-fiction than the editors. It's more the pressing demands of the editors and marketers or people who want to sell the books. But on the other hand, there is also a thrill to call your completely autobiographical piece, fiction and completely (laughs) fiction piece, autobiography, the joy of playing around. Also, that switches the secret center of the writing. If you call it autobiography, it reads a bit different. If you call it fiction, it reads differently.
0: We'll talk more after the story. Yes. Now, here is Orhan Pamuk reading My Russian Education by Vladimir Nabokov as it originally appeared in The New Yorker.
1: I was 11 years old when my father decided that the tutoring I had had and was still having at home in St. Petersburg might be profitably supplemented by my attending Tyneshev School. This school was a comparatively young institution of a much more progressive type than the ordinary gymnasium to which general category it belonged. Its course of study consisting of 16 semesters, 8 gymnasium classes, would be roughly equivalent in this country to the last six years of school, plus the first two years of college. Upon my admittance in January 1911, I found myself in the third semester or in the beginning of the eighth grade, according to the American system. School was taught from the 15th of September to the 25th of May, with a couple of interruptions. A two-week intersemestral gap during which the huge Christmas tree touched with its star the pale green ceiling of our prettiest drawing room and a one-week Easter vacation when painted eggs enlivened their breakfast table. Since snow and frost lasted from October well into April, no wonder the mean of my school memories is definitely wintry. When Ivan I, who vanished one day, or Ivan the Second who was to see the time when I would send him forth on romantic errands, came to wake me around 8 a.m., the outside world was still cowled in brown hyperborean gloom. The electric light in my bedroom had a sullen, harsh, jaundiced tinge that made my eyes smart. Invariably, I was confronted by some chunk of unfinished homework, Mornings were botched, and such things as the lessons in boxing and fencing that a wonderful rubbery Frenchman, Monsieur L'Austolo, used to give me had to be discontinued. He still came almost daily, however, to spar or fence with my father. After gulping down a cup of tepid cocoa in the dining-room downstairs, I would dash with my fur coat half on through the green drawing-room toward the library, from which came a medley of stamping and scraping sounds. There I would find my father, a big, robust man, looking still bigger in his white training suit, trusting and parrying, while his agile instructor added brisk exclamations, paté, rompé, to the click-clink of the foils. Panting a little, my father would remove the convex fencing mask from his perspiring pink face to kiss me good morning. The place combined pleasantly the scholarly and the athletic, the letter of books and the letter of boxing gloves. Fat armchairs stood along the book-lined walls. An elaborate punching bag, a fair purchased in England. Four steel posts supporting the board from which the pear-shaped bag hung gleam at the end of the spacious room. The purpose of this apparatus, especially in connection with the machine gun-like ratatata of its bag, was questioned, and the butler's explanation of it was reluctantly accepted as true by some heavily armed street fighters who came in through the window in 1917. When the increasing savagery of Lenin's regime made it imperative for us to leave St. Petersburg, That library disintegrated, but queer little remnants of it kept cropping up abroad. Some twelve years later, in Berlin, I picked up from a bookstall one such waif bearing my father's ex libris. Very fittingly, it turned out to be The War of the Worlds by Wells. And after another decade had elapsed, I discovered one day in the New York Public Library, indexed under my father's name, a copy of the neat catalogue he had privately printed when the phantom books listed therein still stood ruddy and sleek on his shelves. He would replace his mask and go on with his stamping and lunging while I hurried back the way I had come and on outdoors. After the warmth in the entrance hall, where logs were crackling in the large fireplace, the outdoor air gave an icy shock to one's lungs. I would ascertain which of our two cars, the Benz or the Wolseley, was there to take me to school. The first, a mouse-gray landaulet manned by a gentle, pale-faced chauffeur, was the older one. Its lines had seemed positively dynamic in comparison with those of the insipid, noiseless and noiseless electric coupe that preceded it, but in its turn it acquired an old-fashioned, top-heavy look, with a sadly shrunken radiator as soon as the long, black English limousine came to share its garage. To get the newer car was to start the day zestfully. Pirogo, the second chauffeur, was a very short, pudgy fellow with a russet complexion that matched well the shade of the furs he wore over his corduroy suit and the orange-brown of his leggings. When some hitch in the traffic forced him to apply the brakes which he did by suddenly distending himself in a peculiar springy manner, or when I bothered him by trying to use the squeaky and not very efficient speaking tube, the back of his thick neck, seen through the glass partition, would turn a fierce crimson. Although heavy snowfalls were much more usual in St. Petersburg than, say, around Boston, The several automobiles that circulated among the numerous sleighs of the town somehow never seemed to get into the hideous kind of trouble that modern cars get into on a good New England white Christmas. Many strange forces had been involved in the building of the city. One is led to suppose that the arrangement of its snows tidy drifts along the sidewalks and a smooth solid spread on the octangular wood blocks of the pavement was arrived at by some kind of unholy cooperation between the geometry of the streets and the physics of the snow clouds. Anyway, driving to school never took more than a quarter of an hour. Our house was number 47 in Morskaya Street. Then came Prince Oginsky's. Number forty five, then the Italian Embassy, number forty three, then the German Embassy, number forty one, and then the vast Marie Square, after which the house numbers continued to dwindle. There was a small public park on the left side of the square. In one of its linden trees, an ear and a finger had been found one day, remnants of a terrorist whose hand had slipped while he was arranging a parcel in his room on the other side of the square. Those same trees, a pattern of silver flea in a mother-of-pearl mist out of which the bronze dome of St. Isaac's arose in the background, had also seen children shot down at random from the branches into which they had climbed in a vain attempt to escape the mounted gendarmes who were quelling the First Revolution, 1905-06. Quite a few little stories like these were attached to squares and streets in St. Petersburg. Upon reaching Nevsky Avenue, one followed it for a long stretch, during which it was a pleasure to overtake with no effort some cloaked guardsman in his rapid sleigh, drawn by a pair of black stallions, snorting and speeding along under the spectacular bright blue netting that prevented lumps of hard snow from flying into the passenger's face. A street on the left side, with the lovely name, Karavannaya, the street of caravans, took one past an unforgettable toy shop. Next came the Xinazeli Circus, famous for its wrestling tournaments. Finally, after crossing an ice-bound canal, one drove up to the gates of the Tenishev School in Mokhovaya Street, the street of Mosus. In becoming one of the leaders of the Constitutional Democratic Party, my father had contemptuously forfeited his court title. After refusing to drink that tsar's held at a certain banquet, he had coolly advertised his court uniform for sale in the newspapers. His speeches in the first Duma, Parliament, and his articles in the periodicals of his party had won him national fame. He was a learned jurist. Belonging, as he did, to the great classless intelligentsia of Russia, he thought it right to have me attend a school distinguished by its democratic principles, its policy of non-discrimination in matters of rank, race, and creed, and its up-to-date educational methods. Apart from these, the Tenechev School differed in nothing from any other school in time or space. As in all schools, the boys tolerated some teachers and loathed others, and, as in all schools, there was a constant interchange of obscene quips and erotic information. Being good at games, I would not have found the whole business too dismal if only my teachers had been less intent on trying to save my soul. They accused me of not conforming to my surroundings, of showing off, mainly by peppering my Russian papers with English and French terms, which came naturally to me, as I had been tutored in those languages, of refusing to touch the filthy wet towels in the washroom, of fighting with my knuckles instead of using the slap-like swing with the underside of the fist adopted by Russian hoodlums, The headmaster, who knew little about games, though greatly approving of their consociative virtues, was suspicious of my always keeping gold in soccer instead of running about with the other players. Another thing that provoked resentment was my riding to and from school in an automobile instead of travelling by streetcar or horse cab as the other boys did with his face all screwed up in a grimace of disgust, one teacher suggested to me that the least I could do was to have the automobile stop two or three blocks away so that my schoolmates might be spared the sight of a liveried chauffeur doffing his cap. It was as if the school were allowing me to carry about a dead rat by the tail, with the understanding that I would not dangle it under people's noses. The worst situation, however, arose from the fact that even then I was intensely averse to joining movements or associations of any kind. I enraged the kindest and most well-meaning among my teachers by declining to participate in extracurricular group work, little-debating societies with the solemn election of officers and the reading of reports on historical questions, and, in the higher grades, more ambitious meetings for the discussion of current political events. The constant pressure upon me to belong to some group or other never broke my resistance, but led to a state of tension that was hardly improved by everybody's harping upon the example set by my father. My father was, indeed, a very active man, but I viewed his activities through a prism of my own, which split into many enchanting colors, the rather austere light my teachers glimpsed. In connection with his varied interests, criminological, legislative, political, editorial, philanthropic, he had to attend many committee meetings, and these were often held at our home. That such a meeting was forthcoming might always be deduced from a peculiar sound in the far end of our large and resonant entrance hall. There, in a recess under the marble staircase, our Schweitzer, doorman, would be busy sharpening pencils when I came home from school. For that purpose, he used a bulky, old fashioned machine with a varying wheel, the handle of which he rapidly turned. For years, he had been the tritest type of faithful old servant imaginable, full of wisdom and wit and quaint sayings. But that pencil sharpening chore must have considerably embittered the poor fellow, for it later turned out that he had got into touch with the Tsar's secret police. Tyros, of course in comparison with Czerzhinsky's or Yagoda's men, but still fairly bothersome. Around eight in the evening, the hall would house an accumulation of greatcoats and galoshes. In a committee room next to the library, at a long base-covered table, where those beautifully pointed pencils had been laid out, my father and his colleagues would gather to discuss some phase of their opposition to the Tsar. Above the hub of voices, a tall clock in a dark corner would break into Westminster chimes, and beyond the committee room there were mysterious depths, storerooms, a winding staircase, a pantry of swords, where one might, the Tsar's police placed a fat, blear-eyed spy who went laboriously down on his knees when discovered. But how on earth could I discuss all this with school teachers? The reactionary press never ceased to attack my father's party, and I had got quite used to the more or less vulgar cartoons which appeared from time to time my father and his colleague Professor Miliukov handing over Saint Russia on a plate to world jewelry and that sort of thing. But one day in nineteen thirteen, the most powerful of the rightist newspapers employed a shady journalist to concoct a scurrilous piece containing insinuations that my father could not let pass. Since the well-known rascality of the actual author of the article made him non-duelable, as the Russian dueling code had it, my father called out instead the somewhat less disreputable editor of the paper in which the article had appeared. A Russian duel was a much more serious affair than the conventional Parisian variety. It took the editor two or three days to make up his mind whether or not to accept the challenge. On the last of these days, a Monday, I went, as usual, to school. In consequence of my not reading the newspapers, I was absolutely ignorant of the whole thing sometime during the day I became aware that a magazine open at a certain page was passing from hand to hand and causing titters. A well-timed pounce put me in possession of what proved to be the latest copy of a cheap weekly containing a lurid account of my father's challenge with idiotic comments on the choice of weapons he had offered his foe. There was also a good deal about the number of his servants and the number of his suits. I found out that he had chosen for his second his brother-in-law, Admiral Kolomeitsev, a hero of the Japanese war. During the Battle of Tushishima, this uncle of mine, then holding the rank of captain, had managed to bring his torpedo boat alongside the burning flagship and save the commander-in-chief. After classes, I ascertained that the magazine belonged to one of my best friends. I charged him with betrayal and mockery. In the ensuing fight, he crashed backward into a desk, catching his foot in a joint and breaking his ankle. He was laid up for a month, but gallantly concealed from his family and from our teachers my share in the matter. The pang of seeing him carried downstairs was lost in my general misery. For some reason or other, no car came to fetch me that day, and during the cold, dreary, incredibly slow drive home, In a hired sleigh, I had ample time to think matters over. Now I understood why, the day before my mother had been so little with me and had not come down to dinner. I also understood what special coaching Fernand, a still finer matre d'arm than Loustalot, had of late been giving my father. What would his adversary choose, I kept asking myself, the blade or the bullet? Or had the choice already been made? Carefully I took the beloved, the familiar, the richly alive image of my father at fencing and tried to transfer that image, minus the mask and the padding, to the dueling ground in some barn or riding school. I visualized him and his adversary, both bare-chested, black-trousered, in furious battle, their energetic movements, marked by that strange awkwardness, which even the most elegant swordsman cannot avoid in a real encounter. The picture was so repulsive, so vividly did I feel the ripeness and nakedness of a madly pulsating heart about to be pierced, that I found myself hoping for what seemed momentarily a more abstract weapon. But soon I was in even deeper distress.' As the sleigh crept along Nevsky Avenue, where blurry lights swam in the gathering dusk, I thought of the heavy black browning my father kept in the upper right-hand drawer of his desk. I knew that pistol as well as I knew all the other, more salient things in his study. The object d'art of crystal or vein stone, fashionable in those days, the glinting family photographs. "'the huge, mellowly illuminated Peru Gino, "'the small, honey-bright Dutch oils, "'and right over the desk "'the rose and haze pastel portrait of my mother by Buxt. "'The artist had drawn her face in three-quarter view, "'wonderfully bringing out its delicate features, "'the upward sweep of the ash-coloured hair "'it had greyed some fifteen years before "'when she was but twenty, "'the pure curve of the forehead, "'the dull blue eyes,' the graceful line of the neck. When I urged the old doll like driver to go faster, he would merely lean to one side with a special half-circular movements of his arm so as to make his horse believe he was about to produce the short whip he kept in the leg of his right arctic and that would be sufficient for the shaggy little hack to make as vague a show of speeding up as the driver had made of getting out his nutishka. In the almost hallucinatory state that our snow-muffled ride engendered, I refought all the famous pistol duels a Russian boy knows so well. I saw mortally wounded Pushkin grimly sit up to fire his shot. I saw Lermontov smile as he faced Martinov. No Russian writer of any repute had failed to describe a duel, Among several prominent families, there had been tragic deaths of that sort in more or less recent years. Slowly, my dreamy sleigh drove up Morskaya Street, and slowly dim silhouettes of duelists walked towards each other and stopped, at the crack of down, in damp glades of old country estates, on bleak military training grounds, or in the driving snow between two rows of fir trees. And behind it all there was yet a very special emotional abyss that I was desperately trying to skirt, lest I burst into a tempest of tears and this was the tender friendship underlying my respect for my father, the charm of our perfect accord, the bicycle rides we took together in summer, the Wimbledon matches we followed in London papers, the butterflies we discussed, the chess problems we solved, the Pushkin iambics that rolled off his tongue so triumphantly, whenever I mentioned some minor poet of the day, and especially that habitual exchange of homespun nonsense and private jokes which is the secret code of happy families. At last I was home, and immediately upon entering the vestibule, I became aware of loud, cheerful voices. With the patness of dream arrangements, my uncle, the admiral, was coming downstairs. From the red-carpeted landing above, where a Greek statue presided over a Malachite ball for visiting cards. My parents were still speaking to him, and as he came down the steps, he looked up with a laugh and slapped the balustrade with the gloves he had in his hand. I knew at once that there would be no duel, that the challenge had been met by an apology, that all was right. I brushed past my uncle and reached the landing. I saw my mother's serene, everyday face, but I could not look at my father. And then it happened. My heart welled in me like that wave on which the Buni rose when her captain brought her alongside the burning Suvoro, and I had no handkerchief. All this was long time ago, and several years were to pass before a certain night in 1922 at a public lecture in Berlin when my father shielded the lecturer, his old friend, Miluko, from the bullets of two Russian fascists and while vigorously knocking down one of the assassins, was fatally shot by the other. But no shadow was cast by that future event upon the bright stairs of our St. Petersburg house, and a large cool hand resting on my head did not quiver, and several lines of play in a difficult chess composition were not blended yet on the board.
0: That was Orhan Pamuk reading my Russian education. Which appeared in The New Yorker in September of 1948. An extended and revised version of the piece can be found in Nabokov's autobiography, Speak Memory, which is published by Everyman's Library. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So Orhan, Nabokov told a friend that it was very difficult for him to write this piece, that he he had to force himself to write about his father. And, you know, Speak Memory has a very moving chapter about his mother. Why do you think it was harder for him to do this one?
1: I think he identified strongly with his father, with his qualities, the way he read Pushkin poems, the way he played with him, the private language they develop together, which he associates with family happiness. These things are so deeply felt that I think it was hard to write it. He just cannot go into the heart of the matter. Only in the last two pages of the story that he goes to the fact that his father was shot, that he was so worried that his father was going to be shot in a duel some, say, 10 years before that. This lies at the heart of the story, but the story is called My Russian Education, not My Russian Father or My Father.
0: Yes, it's interesting that he, he seems to sort of obfuscate that.
1: I think this is a trick we authors do if a subject is so grave, so important, that you don't put it in the middle of the plate but put it by the side and you begin talking about other things as if they are the important things. You make a composition. You don't talk about the most gravest thing from the beginning but begin turning around it. I think this is, at the heart of the desire to write a fiction, we have some secret wounds, and the Nabokovian wound is obvious here. Then we want to talk about the wounds, but associate them with the whole culture, with some texture, with some memories. Then we can talk about them in good conscience, because as we talk about the little trivial things, actually we are talking, speaking about our father. This is such a strong center that to that center, you can attach all the little things. Then those little things, street names, other teachers, the friends in school, their jokes, his snobbery, this or that, then they begin to live. They begin to get the sensations, associations the father has.
0: You know, he put the book out, uh, Speak Memory, is, it, was, it was called Conclusive Evidence when it first came out in the 50s. And then in the 60s, he was translating it into Russian and at the same time adapting the English and and adding to it. And I think he had some new documents he'd got from his mother's archive and so on. He expanded the portrait of his father quite a lot in the book and maybe at that point felt freer to do it somehow, simply because more time had passed.
1: Perhaps also that once you write something that you're convinced has some strength, you can add things to it. The proof that this is not actually fiction, but um, a memoir is that you can add to a memoir, but you cannot easily add to a beautiful short story. The house that he describes, by the way, and I forget to tell you that one of the reasons I chose this story, I've been there, this house that Nabokov family had lived in St. Petersburg, which is now converted into a museum.
0: Yes, I've been there too. Mm -hmm. It's amazing.
1: It's an irony that, that his father and his friends were having political meetings, And the people at the museum told me that later after the revolution, especially during the Stalin years, there were again political meetings there after the house was confiscated. But the meetings were the censor board of St. Petersburg or Leningrad at the time were meeting there to censor books, irony of ironies.
0: It's interesting to me, speaking of the house, how Nabokov sort of plants all of these seeds in the beginning half of the story the sense of violence to come. And, and there's sort of a melding of the idea of scholarship and the idea of, of battle. You know, the father keeps his pistol in his desk. He he has these fencing lessons, this punching bag in the library. It's a big house. You'd think they could put these things in their own room. But somehow they're all mixed in with the books and with uh, this sense of scholarship.
1: And also, uh, um, Nabokov knows that smell of books only go well with smell of other things. (laughs) Um, The the smell of boxing gloves or the atmosphere of the house. That scholarly atmosphere is interesting if there is a strong life going around it.
0: But at the same time, there's sort of a a lot of foreshadowing of, of violence and death. He tells you at the beginning of the piece that in Berlin in 1923, he finds his father's copy of War of the Worlds. Later, we understand he's finding this copy of War of the Worlds right after his father's been killed. Even on that drive to school, you have, you know, the finger and the ear and the tree and with the children being shot down.
1: That I found a bit creepy in the story. We did not need that. I also thought that Nabokov is a bit catering to New York readers
0: I don't think, you know, I don't think Nabokov ever catered to New Yorker readers. He was very adamant about not being edited here.
1: Catering is the wrong word, perhaps. But then I read the story years ago. Now it seemed a bit slightly different to me. Too much drama here, I thought. And less attention paid to father, maybe. That's what makes the story so lively.
0: Perhaps it's that he couldn't think about his father without also thinking about violent acts. Perhaps those things jump out to him.
1: Of course, the killing of his father is, I think, in a way projected to the killing in Pale Fire, the killing of the judge. I think it's the best way he dealt with the killing, accidental killing of his father, is the way he constructed Pale Fire, and the way he retold that accident, and the danger of some threat coming from outside to the home is more felt in Pale Fire.
0: He's certainly, I don't think he's catering to the reader at the end, but he's certainly doing something to kind of shock the reader at the end where you get home and there's this beautiful image of the carefree father and the the admiral, you know, slapping his gloves and so on, and you feel reprieved. And then in the next breath, you have he's dead, even though it was 12 years later.
1: Yes, so he first let us... It relieves us that the father is alive. We are also, just like in a movie, we feel like we are in at the end of a Hollywood happy ending movie and it's beautiful, then suddenly it all cruelly turns around.
0: Do you think that you you yourself read this differently if you're reading it as a story than if you're reading it as, as his memoir?
1: Yes, of course. Nobako published this heartfelt thing, calling it a story, personally implying that please don't pity me or just don't look at my personal tragedy it's nothing, just look at my tragedy as a beautiful perfect story something
0: constructed mm -hmm, uh,
1: that is a way of perhaps dealing with it but on the other hand, after years pass, now it's a classic book its value is that it's factual, this is how he dealt with it, but remember he also dealt with it in a much more uh, symmetrically interesting way in pale fire
0: in in fiction yes yeah. the one thing that um, that I was surprised at reading this again was just to see how much of Nabokov the the adult writer came from his father you know the push the love of Pushkin the butterflies the chess everything that sort of defined him
1: yes this is why I like this because my father also used to recite poetry like that, that I also was happy to develop this kind of private language with my father, admired him, learned lots of things from him, and, more important here, identified with him. And his tenderness, the way he looked at the world passed to me. That's, that is why I love this uh, story or a piece of autobiography, whatever you call it.
0: Well, thank you so much, Orhan.
1: It's my pleasure, Deborah. I thank New Yorker so much, and thank you.
0: Orhan Pamuk's forthcoming novel is called The Museum of Innocence. You can read an excerpt from it and several personal histories on our website, newyorker.com, where you can also download previous fiction podcasts. They can also be found in the iTunes store. You can download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.